Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Hope you're all doing well. I want to apologize for my absence these past few weeks. I became pretty sick in April with what I assumed was just a sinus infection, so was treated for that, assuming it was just brought on by seasonal allergies. And I kept getting sicker and sicker, and my cough was getting ridiculous. Then I found out that my neighbor had tested positive for COVID-19. I got a test. I tested negative, but kept getting worse. And my doctor did not really believe the results or was worried about them. So basically just treated me like I had it and gave me some really strong medication. And I am feeling much better than I did then. I'm still not 100%. I kind of I'm still getting wiped out, not as much. I was walking room to room and it felt like I was running a mile, so that wasn't good. But I'm definitely doing better than I did and I missed recording and I missed recommending great movies. I hope you enjoyed all of the Watch with Jen and Friends episodes. Luckily, I had recorded three conversations, so I was able to just kind of edit those leisurely and release them. So I want to thank those guests, Nell Minow, William Boyle, and Jed Ayers. I think that they were stellar, and I hope you got a kick out of them. So I do hope you will overlook the fact that my voice is a little scratchy still. It is much better than it was. I was sounding like a six-pack-a-day smoker or a Simpsons character, so at least it isn't like that anymore. And... I want to give another shout out to Kate Gabrielle who updated my logo so it looks amazing. I encourage you guys to all check that out. Now that that has been redone and submitted, we are now available on Apple Podcasts as well. So you can find Watch with Jen on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a number of other servers. If there is a service that you use for podcasts that you cannot find Watch With Jen on, let me know and I will try to submit it there as well. I also want to go ahead and congratulate our MVP, Jacob Rivera, who watched 22 new movies in the last two months it is always amazing to me and like the biggest compliment when someone actually takes the time to watch a movie you recommend and Jacob not only did that but he watched all 22 of the films that I recommended that he had not seen on the podcast and listed some of his favorites. You'll find his take on a number of these titles in the comments on Patreon on the various episodes. He's also replied on to the letterbox list which films were his favorites. So I do want to thank Jacob. It is incredibly flattering that he did that, and I'm glad that he really seemed to respond to a number of these movies. So it's been great to see. Well, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and dive into this week's features. 
The first film that I'd like to talk about today is one that just opened. I reviewed it over on Film Intuition, and I will link to that review in this post. It is called A Good Woman is Hard to Find. It is from director Abner Pastel, and you can rent this on demand for as low as like $2.99 over on Amazon, various retailers. It is available right now and definitely one you should jump to see. The film stars Sarah Bolger as Sarah, a recently widowed mother of two young children whose husband was murdered on the sidewalk outside of their North Ireland housing estate in a shocking crime that has rendered the only living witness to it, her six-year-old son, mute with fear and anxiety. At the start of the movie, Sarah tries to keep her head down and focus on what's directly in front of her at all times. She's faced with a series of dead ends from grocery bills she can barely afford to authorities who try to convince her that her husband was a drug dealer instead of an innocent victim. Her mother agrees with that theory as well. Sarah's problems collide head-on when Tito, played by Andrew Simpson, a low-level dealer, rips off a notorious local gangster and forces himself inside her apartment. Using her bathroom to stash the dope he'd just stolen, Tito threatens the frightened young mother into compliance, saying that he'll give her a cut of whatever he sells as long as he can keep the gear there. Not the type of woman to go to the police, especially when they're already suspicious about her husband, and that could lead directly to social services and risk losing her children. Sarah stays quiet and enjoys one carefree day of grocery shopping before reality sets in at night when Tito returns and a shocking confrontation results in the foul play alluded to in the film's opening scene, which finds Sarah covered in blood. Using the building blocks of a cot between a rock and a hard place neo-noir, where screenwriter Ronan Blaney's economical storytelling reveals only what we must know to move from one scene to the next, kind of like Sarah keeps her head down and just stays focused on what's in front of her. A Good Woman is Hard to Find, to me, plays a lot like Nicholas Winding Refn's Pusher trilogy. If, you know, the women in the series were given more to do than just play strippers or whores. Vibrating on a frequency that pitches out from the speakers and straight into your chest, Matthew Pusty's driving techno throb of a score takes that Refn homage even further. As certain scenes including one great one where Tito stages his big snatch and grab by car, feel like they could have been scored by frequent ref and composer Cliff Martinez, whose work includes, you know, Drive, Only God Forgives, and the new Too Old to Die Young series. But it's more than just a tribute or more than any kind of direct homage. The film is its own thing, and when you combine the score with the clever visual motif of the docudrama style by day with its lurid, glossily red and dark tone filled hues of night from cinematographer Richard C. Bell. The movie has its own brutal yet vulnerable glow. It's very distinct, very exciting, and you feel like you are transported right into this world of Irish crime that this young mother finds herself plunged in. 
She tries to navigate the increasingly hazardous situation she's in with her wits or whatever weapon she can get her hands on before too late. And while the movie is not for the faint of heart, I actually watched it with someone who usually does pretty well with violence, except if it looks too gory. She only had to look away like once or twice. It's still so engrossing that I think it will easily draw you in and you won't even care about some of the gore, especially in one unforgettable sequence that takes things a little too far. So you might just want to look away there, but don't give up because it is so worth it. Sarah Bolger in the film is unbelievably good. She really embodies the spirit and the determination of this young mother. And I think the film will also recall You Were Never Really Here as well, just for one sequence where she grabs a hammer and goes to town. She learns that sometimes, you know, when you grab a vibrator, you really need a knife. And other times you find that an axe works so much better than a saw. It's interesting to see what she grabs when. And I love the sort of dark humor that is imbued in the script, where a scene early on that you would consider probably a throwaway scene where she puts her kids to bed and she needs to unwind and she goes for a vibrator is going to come back later. So it shows that it was not just some sort of titillating moment that was included in the film. And it's not shot as such at all. It's just shot as, you know, something she's doing toward the end of the day. But it's cool to see the way that together the screenwriter and the filmmaker know and trust that whatever we're seeing on screen is important and it's going to come back and it really does. It makes me very eager to check out Abner Pastel's Road Games, which I found out is available on Hulu. So that one is right at the top now of my need to watch list and I'm excited to do that as well. But A Good Woman is Hard to Find is a hell of a good thriller and another entry from Film Movement. It's playing in that virtual cinema initiative, which is supposed to also give you an opportunity to support some local art house theaters. So you can find it to rent at a lot of different places. And I cannot recommend it enough. So do check out A Good Woman is Hard to Find. Like the pet that found its way into your home that you wonder how you ever lived without. Have you ever stumbled on a book when you needed it the most and thought that it was written especially for you? The power of books to unite and inspire us is at the heart of director Mike Newell's lush adaptation of the 2008 number one New York Times bestselling novel, The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society by Marianne Schaefer and Annie Burroughs. And that film is the next one I would love to recommend to you. It is available right now on Netflix. No stranger to ensemble pictures or literary adaptations, given his work on Four Weddings and a Funeral and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, respectively. In Guernsey, which is largely set on that very channel island, Through the use of both flashbacks and dialogue, 
Mike Newell and company breathe fresh life into the 1940s period movie while showing us a side of World War II that has been largely overlooked on screen, which is the occupation of these islands and and England during the war. Adapted by a trio of talented scripters, including Don Roos, Kevin Hood, and Thomas Bezichua, all of whom worked on it at different stages, Guernsey centers on Juliet Ashton, played by Cinderella and Mamma Mia sequel star Lily James, who I love. She is really becoming one of our great actresses. Juliet Ashton is a London-based writer who tries to keep up a good front while dealing with the stressful after-effects of World War II in 1946. Half of her time is devoted to book readings and apartment hunting with her best friend and publisher Sydney, played by the great Matthew Good, and the rest of it is spent dining and dancing with her dashing American G.I. Bowl Mark, played by Glenn Powell. Juliet's daily routine, however, is shaken up for the better when she receives a warm and insightful letter from a farmer from Guernsey named Dossie Adams, played by, I know I'm going to botch this, I do apologize, Michelle Huseman, I want to say. Having come across her name and address in one of her old Charles Lamb books, Dossie asks Juliet where he could perhaps track down more of the author's work for his book club, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which he and a handful of other islanders created out of necessity when they were caught out after curfew by German soldiers who had taken over Guernsey during the war. Initially forced after their run-in just to keep up appearances with the club, eventually the small group of friends and neighbors found themselves welcoming both the escape from the realities of war and the conversational debate that each literary meeting delivered. Completely fascinated, after Juliet sends Dossie the book he'd been searching for and a letter of her own, the two correspond back and forth a short while before she impulsively writes back once more and invites herself to their book club meeting. She kisses her bewildered boyfriend goodbye, catches a ship to Guernsey before she can change her mind or Dossie says no, and arrives. Thrilled to have a real writer in their midst, over the course of an evening of lively Bronte discussion and a taste of that potato peel pie, Juliet discovers that there's much more to the story of this literary society than meets the eye. She becomes fast friends with the group, including her smoldering pen pal, extends her stay, and is determined to locate the society's missing founder, Elizabeth Jessica Brown Finlay, and learn more about exactly what happened on the island during the war. Newell was unable to film on location in Guernsey due to both the logistical nightmare of sending cast crew and equipment back and forth across the English Channel, as well as overhauling the island to make it look like the 1940s. But his talented behind-the-scenes crew, especially production designer James Merrifield, costumer Charlotte Walter, and cinematographer Zach Nicholson, are able to transport us nonetheless by filling the frame with such exquisite detail. This is one of those eye candy movies that you're just going to love to watch and get swept away with. Instantly inviting, it's richly atmospheric. Guernsey recalls the warmth an ensemble camaraderie of Lassie Hallstrom's Chocolat. It also features four actors from the Downton Abbey series in key roles, 
So it not only benefits from the chemistry of its cast, in both in terms of its romantic leads and that love triangle between James and Huisman and Powell, but especially within the Guernsey book club itself. And okay, we do have some more questions about some of the film's supporting characters because they can only fit so much plot into the picture, which makes me really curious to pick up that book finally. It's one of hundreds probably on my Kindle that I need to get to. I'm one of those habitual book buyers. But overall, it's just one of Netflix's best original features, and it works in a compelling wartime mystery plot. So the screenwriters remind us that this is much more than just like a traditional love story about two people brought together by their love of words. Although I'm a complete sucker for that. I love movies where people write letters and fall in love or don't get a look at each other for the longest time. I think those are the dreamiest love stories by far. I think probably because I'm a writer and I enjoy writing a long email. I used to do that all the time. Friends and I would just exchange these like super long emails. I still write emails to friends sometimes. Some of them I think are into it and then other people are thinking, geez, Jan, we could just talk by phone or Skype or something. So I don't know that they're as excited by it as I am. But I think in a way you exchange more information or you do so differently by letter than you would through face-to-face chats or especially text message, which I love to do, but you find yourself sharing more or reaching deeper, I think, when all you're looking at is a blank screen. And so I am a complete sucker for all types of movies that follow that sort of path to friendship or romance. And of course, also this benefits from Lily James, who plays a boldly feminist heroine, and it's just such a moving storyline. One great thing is this sort of capped off Netflix's incredible summer of 2018, where they just kind of released one female-oriented film after another after another. This was also the year of To All the Boys uh, I've Loved Before and Like Father. I think these played pretty much week after week after week. I remember writing a different review of a different Netflix title back to back to back. And I think this was probably the best of the three. Like Father's just sort of light, fun entertainment, which I recommended before actually just as escapist fare. No, it wasn't a masterpiece, but it was a lot of fun. To All the Boys I Loved Before, I thought was one of the best teen movies I had seen in recent years. But Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, I thought was Netflix's crowning achievement in 2018 that I had seen anyway. So I do think that you will really appreciate the film and hopefully get into it, if, especially if you dig like quirky British ensemble pieces and also appreciate a good period love story and mystery. Recently, I recorded an episode of All the President's Minutes, which is Blake Howard's latest podcast devoted to the minutes of not heat this time, but the landmark film All the President's Men, 
which is timelier than ever thanks to this joke of a Trump administration we have right now. While we were discussing the movie and the career of Alan J. Pacula, I mentioned that I had just watched The Pelican Brief again, which Pacula directed in the 90s that was based on a terrific crackerjack thriller of a novel by John Grisham that I remember staying up all night to read. Back when those new Grisham books were like all over the airports and we used to pick them up, read them within a day or two. It was, it's really one of the first memories I have as a young reader where I just needed to keep those pages turning was for the Pelican Brief. So while I was discussing that movie, Blake and I realized that there's something about these directors who made really good paranoid thrillers in the 70s that latched right on to John Grisham's books. You have Sidney Pollock's terrific adaptation of The Firm, which is probably the best of the Grisham adaptations. Then you have Pacula's The Pelican Brief, which is itself a lot of fun, and it has a lot in common with All the President's Men. You can watch those two as companion films. And when I was preparing for the podcast, I did watch them in quick succession and kind of marveled over the similarities between the two. Of course, also, this decade, you had a couple films that were directed by Joel Schumacher. He tackled A Time to Kill and The Client. And then also, you had Robert Altman, who was directing The Gingerbread Man, which is an underrated movie. It isn't the greatest Grisham, but there's something about it for lovers of noir who are going to really appreciate what he did there. The fourth director, besides Pollock, Pacula, Robert Altman, is none other than the director of the movie I'm going to talk about today, which is Francis Ford Coppola and his unsung adaptation of The Rainmaker, which was made in 1997. It's a film you can find on almost every service right now, from Netflix to Hoopla to Pluto, Prime and Hulu. Basically, you look for The Rainmaker, you're going to find it. Produced by Michael Douglas and written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola based on Grisham's book, except for the voiceover narration that had a different screenwriter. This was an interesting decade for Coppola. He made, of course, Godfather 3, which, you know, I used to hate growing up because I watched, and I still do, the trilogies every Christmas to New Year's. But the older I've gotten, the more peace I've made with the series and the third one, I actually think it's really entertaining, thanks largely to Andy Garcia, who gets to play sort of a combination of all the Corleone brothers, as well as Talia Shire, who basically just becomes Norma Desmond in the film and brings it right back home. I love it. So no, of course, it's not on par with Godfather 1 or 2, but it's still worth watching and a great bookend to the series. The Decade also brought his adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula and a very surprising move for Coppola, the movie Jack with Robin Williams that I think probably me and maybe like five other people remember. The Rainmaker, I think, has grown in esteem over the years. It's one that, sadly, Coppola himself has kind of disowned. He's made fun of the fact that he had to direct a Grisham book, saying that a career he really admires was his friend Woody Allen. And in an interview, he said over and over again, He wanted a career like Woody Allen's, where every year he gets to make a personal movie on his own terms, 
And he said, you don't see Woody making a John Grisham movie. And I think that's kind of unfair. It's apples and oranges. Woody makes very personal movies. They have very limited sets, small casts, their chamber dramas or dramedies, depending on what he's making. They are different animals completely. Whereas Coppola is kind of an operatic filmmaker. He likes to have a bunch of logs on fire, a lot of dramas, some highs and lows. You need the big sets, you need name casts. He really isn't making anything like the Woody pictures. And so I always felt bad that he looked down on this movie because I think it's damn good. The film stars Matt Damon as Rudy Baylor. Inspired by civil rights lawyers who gave lawyers a good name, he makes a ton of jokes about how bad lawyers are early in the movie. The blue collar Rudy Baylor tends bar in school, kind of like Mitch McDeer did in The Firm. Gershom has this thing about blue collar men sort of, you know, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And he graduates from Memphis Law School. Memphis, he says, is infested with lawyers. Gets a job for Mickey Rourke's J. Lyman Bruiser Stone, which is the perfect name for a Mickey Rourke character. I mean, the first time you see him, he's sort of standing by this desk. And even before he played the wrestler, there's something bruising about Mickey Rourke as Bruiser Stone. An ambulance chaser who kind of runs a firm where people go looking for any case they can to make a few quick bucks. Rudy gets a job there, and part of his job description is that he has to hunt for clients at the hospital. He came to the firm with two clients, a will for a rich old lady whose place he lives at, and a lawsuit against Great Benefit Insurance Company, which is ironically named because the insurance company is stiffing a hardworking family who is paying their premiums every month and getting nothing for their 20-year-old son, Donnie Ray, who has leukemia. They're not approving a bone marrow transplant or any treatment. Mary Kay Place and Red West play the parents of Johnny Whitworth, who is Donnie Ray. Even though he's not supposed to get involved with his clients or be emotionally drawn in, he is definitely emotionally drawn to Donnie Ray. In addition to all of this stuff, he starts working with Dak Shiflett, played by Danny DeVito, another one of those great John Grisham names. Danny DeVito is former insurance assessor. He's less than ethical. He's now a paralegal. He's failed the bar exam six times. And he is Rudy's right-hand man. While pursuing this case against Great Benefit, the insurance bad faith case, Bruiser's place is raided by the FBI, so Rudy and Deck set up their own office. And it's kind of a David versus Goliath story, Goliath being John Voight, who is the opposing counsel, or I should say one of like the veritable city of lawyers that Roy Scheider's insurance company has representing them. Teresa Wright is very good. It's her final film performance as the old woman that Rudy lives with. Danny Glover, who I guess was uncredited, plays the judge in the case. And another subplot, which sadly is underdeveloped, I will admit, especially the character at the heart of it, involves Claire Danes as Kelly Riker, who is a battered wife that Rudy meets 
and is immediately struck by in the hospital because he himself is the son of an abusive father. His father beat his mother. So right away, that's going to tug at Rudy's heartstrings. And also because he is definitely attracted to Kelly right away and wants her to get away from her abusive husband played by Andrew Shu. Falling for her at the hospital, the two start to see one another more. Once she's back out in the real world, they have to kind of meet up covertly. There's kind of a great romantic moment of a scene that's sort of blink and you missed it quick, where he goes to see her at her jewelry store. She tells him to buy a ticket to a movie. He does, and when she enters, the two are just so glad to be close to one another but of course at the same time a love scene comes on in the film i believe it's the lover is the movie that they're watching but i could be wrong it's a fast scene and just like claire dane's character overall it is underdeveloped from what it could be but she still adds a nice little reprieve from the main case and a nice balance that lets us learn more about rudy and appreciate his scrappiness, especially when push comes to shove and there's another confrontation with that horrific husband of hers. It has some great lines. Danny DeVito, I think, is saddled with the most memorable ones, including one right off the bat where he says, there's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And because of that, and because I'm somebody who's always struggled to get insurance to pay for things with my disability and various health challenges over the years, I've kind of had an ongoing war with various insurance companies, basically as far back as I can remember. So this was one of the Grishams that I felt the biggest kinship with. I mean, of course, if you ask most precocious girls, they're going to say that Darby Shaw from the Pelican Reef is their favorite heroine because she uses her wits to put together who's behind this big assassination plot of the Supreme Court justices. And of course, Darby is my favorite character. But if you're going for which Grisham plot had the most significance to me personally, I would say The Rainmaker. I also think it might have been one of Grisham's last really good books. He's had some sporadic good ones here and there. Of course, I have not read one of his in ages, but I think right now, especially with the battles going on with the news of Medicare for All and kind of what's going on with testing right now during coronavirus and trying to get insurance to cover everyone and those who don't have insurance. I think The Rainmaker has taken on some new significance. So it's one I was very eager to revisit now and I found it still plays like gangbusters. So I think you'll dig it if you give it a chance and appreciate what those 70s directors did when they hit the 90s. One of my favorite genres for old movies, besides musicals and screwball comedies, are the 1950s and 60s sex comedies, or as I like to call them, the sexless sex comedies. They're frothy, there's a lot of door slamming, there's a lot of mistaken identity, misunderstandings, 
all of the elements that would come together to make some really good classic sitcom plots were best epitomized by these films. And I think the movies themselves have inspired so many beyond the 1960s. And one group of pictures in particular that I feel like is a direct descendant from 1960s sexless sex comedies are the French comedies of the, I would say, late 90s into the early aughts. You're going to want to grab a pen for these because while I am talking about one picture in particular, that is Priceless, which came out in 2006 and is available on Prime, Vudu, and Canopy right now from director Pierre Salvadori. I'm also going to bring up a couple other films from this genre, if you will, that I do highly recommend. Pierre Salvadori is a great ensemble comedic director. He's not quite in Francis Weber's league. Francis Weber, of course, as far back as Le Cage aux Faux, which became The Birdcage. Uh, there are so many Francis Weber pictures that we have remade in America that, like Pure Luck, I believe, um, Father's Day, some of them we didn't do the greatest job on, but Weber is probably, you know, tier one. And then Pierre Salvadori is kind of right up there with him. And in 2006, both Salvadori and Weber used the same leading man for two of the best comedies that year. The actor is Gad Elmaleh, who is known sort of as the French Jerry Seinfeld. And in 2006, he starred in The Valet for Francis Weber, playing Francois Pignon. Francois Pignon is the name of the character, no matter which movie that Weber releases. You'll find it in The Dinner Game and so many other Weber films. The main character, no matter who plays him, is always Francois Pignon. So Gad played Francois Pignon in The Valet, which I highly, highly recommend. And he also played the sort of hapless romantic hero, same as he did in that picture, in Pierre Salvadori's Priceless which was written by Salvadori and Benoit Graffin. Pierre Salvadori also made a really good movie, you're going to want to write this one down as well, called Apre Vu, or After You. Apre is A-P-R-E-S, and then space V-O-U-S, which, along with the ballet, stars what a man I consider to be my French boyfriend, Daniel Otui. And Salvadori also recently directed In the Courtyard. He is still releasing movie after movie. But Priceless is pretty priceless in its own right. It was inspired by Breakfast at Tiffany's from director Blake Edwards. And the film back then starred Audrey Hepburn. But Salvadori's Priceless stars a different Audrey. Audrey Tateau from Amelie, who is always a delight no matter what she's in. In Priceless, Gad Amelie stars as a waiter barman at a luxury hotel who's mistaken for a millionaire by Irene Tateau, who is a gold digger who convinces rich men to fund her lifestyle 
and her expensive Chanel wardrobe in exchange for companionship and sex. And she kind of goes from man to man, sort of using up one and then finding another one, preying on one guy to the next. And she comes across Gad in the bar. He had fallen asleep on the couch when he was on duty. The two have a one-night stand. He keeps the fact that he is a barman from her. A year later, she returns to the hotel with a different man named Jacques, who had asked her to marry him. She and Gad sleep together one more time, and he's able to conceal his true employ. And she is caught by Jacques this time, and he dumps her. So then she tries to convince Gad that she really just dumped this guy for him. When she discovers who he is, she's ready to just storm off. But he goes after her and foolishly gets all of his money like transferred to one account so he can try to play sugar daddy for a while. And it's if especially like me, you're one of those people who, you know, is working class. And I'm also one of those people who like always tries to split the check when I'm on a date. Like even if you can't, you make the attempt. So I get a little squeamish watching this part of the movie. But Irene takes advantage. It's almost like she's playing chicken with him. They go shopping for one item to the next. And there is this like horrifically funny scene that just kills me where he wakes up and she has this entire room full of like purses and lingerie and dresses and she is putting everything on ripping the tags off and like throwing them into a bowl and you see how much everything is cost as she rips the tag off and you're like dying but anyway the two are kind of playing chicken with one another at this part of the film and because he had lied to her and then she is using him. So neither one is totally in the clear here. But eventually when it seems like, you know, she is just going to completely destroy him financially, he gets noticed by a sugar mama in his own right, a wealthy widow who sort of takes him on and turns him into her own little Irene or toy. And there's a pretty funny sequence where Irene and Gad Elmaleh's character are in changing rooms right next to each other, trying on outfits for their respective people. Like they're the toys of these rich older people. And when they catch each other in the rooms next to one another, they're sort of attracted and curious, and it's a very effective scene. When she feels like he's being taken advantage of by his new sugar mama, Irene intervenes and tries to teach him the tricks of the trade, including one really funny one when she's saying, you know, how you seduce someone, and she starts her sentences and doesn't finish them and says it drives them crazy to hear her say, like, I want or I need and not finish the sentence. So that becomes kind of a running gag. And overall, it's just a really funny movie. It's full of sunshine and gorgeous scenery. So it's one of those French frothy, sophisticated comedies that is perfect for this time of year, spring, summer. It takes you right out of your quarantined house and puts you directly on the beach in France. And that's always a good thing. So I do recommend this. 
it's funny, I found this movie along with a few others. I have quite a little collection of French titles and have been sort of sprinkling them in to watch here and there. And they do kind of lighten the spirits, lift the mood at the end of the day. So I went with Au Prévu one night, The Valet one night, and now Priceless. And let me tell you, I think that's a really great trio of movies for you to check out. So start with Priceless since it's so accessible. It's on Prime, Voodoo, and Canopy. And then go directly to The Valet and Au Prévu and also explore Francis Weber's entire filmography because you just can't go wrong right there. Our final film today is The Guilty from 2018 and it is available right now on Hulu. It's a Danish picture from Gustav Moller, director, who also wrote the film with Emil Nygaard Albertson. The film played at Sundance in 2018, was distributed by Magnolia Pictures, and selected as the Danish submission for Best Foreign Language Film, made the shortlist but did not receive the nomination of one of the five that were the ultimate victors there. It's kind of proof that, once again, to me anyway, the Best Foreign Language Film category is the most interesting one at the Oscars. And more than just the five that wind up there, I always love to go back and look at at least the shortlist and even the the longer list to see what films were nominated from which countries because the realm of stories and talent on display is unparalleled and I encourage you guys to do the same. When it comes to this one, I'm going to have to kind of keep it short because the less you know about the guilty, the better. The film stars Jacobs Settergren, who is a face you're going to recognize if you watch a lot of Danish film. He is immediately recognizable. He gives a top-notch performance here and you find your breath catching as it becomes more and more tense as the movie goes along. Awaiting his hearing for shooting and killing a 19-year-old man, Copenhagen police officer Asger Holm, who is, again, Settergren, is assigned to answer emergency calls. The evening before his hearing, he receives a call from a woman who doesn't say she has an emergency, and she acts as though she's talking to a child. He nearly hangs up the phone, but then realizes that the woman is not alone. So he starts to ask her yes and no questions, and it discreetly becomes aware that she has been abducted. She mentions a white van and he leaps into action, traces the call to a near cell tower, and calls a different police station to look for a white van going north. And then he proceeds to stay on that call, and things grow more compelling and sinister from there. It's a movie of a lot of twists and turns. We watch him on this call from start to finish, and are just right there. For the ride. In some respects, it reminds me sort of as the A picture to what I consider to be a damn good B picture, actually, the Halle Berry movie, The Call, which if you're looking for a good American movie, it's great. But The Guilty is definitely the more intelligent, better made sterling movie from Denmark. And it's actually such a good film that Jake Gyllenhaal, when he saw this film at Sundance, he and his partners bought the American rights to remake The Guilty with him as the lead. I think he would be dynamite in the movie. I think it would 
lend itself very well to an American remake because it is essentially just a one-man show and it has to be a very charismatic, a very compelling man. So I do think that Jake would be perfect for that, but you cannot say enough about Jacob Settergren in this picture. He is phenomenal and I am so glad I saw it. I saw it as a screener the year it came out when I was sort of, you know, frantically going from one movie to the next to try to catch up on all films that I missed because I don't go to festivals and I only receive screeners from certain groups, that kind of thing. So I was very lucky to have access to this film. And it's one that I've not stopped thinking about since I saw it two years ago. And can't wait for you to check it out and do the same. So enjoy The Guilty. And again, I'm sorry for the cryptic tease, not really giving you much to go on here, but I think you'll thank me for it. And there you have this week's movies. Again, it was A Good Woman is Hard to Find, which is available for rent on demand from Film Movement and can be found at a variety of retailers. The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society is on Netflix. The Rainmaker is pretty much wherever you want to look. Pluto, Prime, Netflix, Hoopla, and Hulu. Priceless is also very popular. It is on Prime, Voodoo, YouTube, Canopy, Hoopla, followed by The Guilty, which is on Hulu. So we kind of hit a ton of different services this week for our recommendations. I hope that you appreciate foreign films because this week I dished up a few of them. Actually, four, if you want to consider the fact that A Good Woman is Hard to Find is from Ireland and the Guernsey Literary and Petito Peel Pie Society is from England. So the only American movie was Coppola's Rainmaker. I want to thank you so much for listening and again for being patient with me while I had to take some time off. I know my voice is not top-notch, so I do appreciate you humoring me during this episode. And again, you can find this podcast wherever you listen. And if you need me to upload it to any other services, don't be shy, reach out and let me know. And I will see you next time. So take care and happy movie watching. I am Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen.